Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to this Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be for 3 Nephi chapter 13. So we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, although it's not the Sermon on the Mount, it's the Sermon at the Temple at Bountiful, um, but very similar to the <clears throat> the recorded uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. So this chapter 13 is going to be very similar to Matthew chapter 6. Let's start with verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you that I would that ye should do alms unto the poor, but take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when ye, do, when ye shall do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as will hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. We can either get our reward here on earth for our good deeds, or we can receive them in the next life, but we can't have it in both places. Verse 3, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Henry B. Eyring said, The Lord said, Do not your alms before men, and the best people don't. They do good very privately. Now and then I get a glimpse, always by accident, of the way some people live the simple commandments of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know more than you and I know. They just do more of the simple things you and I have already been taught as children in a primary class. I discover acts of kindness, of forgiveness, or of moral endurance beyond what I had thought we could do. Verse 4, That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father who seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Prayers are answered for those who give, who freely give alms to the poor, but the heavens are sealed where the petitions of those who do not give alms are concerned. According to Jewish custom, um, in, the, in the Encyclopedia Judaica Junior, it says, To give one-tenth of one's wealth to charity is considered to be a middling virtue. To give a 20%, or I'm sorry, to give a 20th, which is 5% or less, is to be mean. But the rabbis decided that one should not give more than a fifth or 20%, lest he become impoverished himself and depend on charity, and dependent upon charity. Verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not do as the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Charles W. Penrose said, Now prayer is not acceptable for its rhetoric. It is that which comes from the heart, the sincere sentiment, the secret feeling which ascends to our Father, and which he who sees in secret will, will reward openly. It is not a multitude of words and repetitions that is pleasing to the Lord, but the earnest desire of a humble heart. And this will be answered no matter how broken or ungrammatical the language may be. On the other hand, no matter how flowery the language of the petition may be, if it does not convey the feelings of the heart, it is not true prayer. Verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father who is in secret, and thy Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when, we, when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. How often do we hear people who who was eloquent in their prayers to the extent of preaching a complete sermon. The hearers tire and the effect is lost, and I sometimes wonder if perhaps the dial of the heavenly radio is not turned off when long and wordy prayers are sent heavenward. That was by President Kimball. 
Dallin Oaks said, Be wise in your public prayers, keep them short, and remember to give a prayer, not a speech. <clears throat> the prophet Joseph Smith said, It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that we, that we may converse with him as one converses with another. No deed motivated by self-enhancement is acceptable to the Lord, for it does not have the power to enlarge the soul. Looking good and being important is a full-time job, draining our energies for, our, for other concerns, like serving God and our fellows. Only deeds motivated by an eye single to God can fill our souls with light to overflowing. And that was by Maureen Jensen Proctor. Verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. Our purpose in prayer is not to get his attention, but for him to get ours. It is the process of prayer that gets us ready to hear his answers. Verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. David and McKay said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallow, to make, hollow, to make holy, to hold in reverence. Reverence, wrote Ruskin, is the noblest state in which a man can live in the world. Reverence is one of the signs of strength. Irreverence, one of the surest indications of weakness. No man will rise high who jeers at sacred things. The fine loyalties of life must be reverenced or they can be forsworn in the day of trial. Charles Jefferson, the author of The Character of Jesus, writes, Men in many circles are clever, interesting, brilliant, but they lack one of the three dimensions of life. They have no reach upward. Their conversation sparkles, but it is frivolous and often flippant. Their talk is witty, but the wit is often at the expense of high and sacred things. Elder Talmadge said, This is the earliest biblical scripture, in other words, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, giving instruction, permission, or warrant for addressing God directly as our Father. Therein is expressed the reconciliation which the human family, estranged through sin, may attain by the means provided through the well-beloved Son. This instruction is equally definite in demonstrating the brotherhood between Christ and humanity. As he prayed, so pray we to the same Father, as we brethren and Christ as our elder brother. We as brethren and Christ as our elder brother. Verse 10. Notice the difference here between this version and the King James Version. Notice that thy kingdom come is missing from the sermon to the Nephites. That's because the kingdom had come to them. He, in verse 10 begins with, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Orson Pratt said, when I reflect that in heaven there is a perfect union or spirit and feeling among the celestial throng, when I reflect that in that happy place there is no dis disunion one with another, no different views, but that all will have the same mind and feeling in regard to the things of God, and then reflect that the day is to come when the same order of things is to be established here upon the earth, and then look at the present condition of mankind. I am constrained to acknowledge that there must be a great revolution on the earth. Where are there two men abroad in the world that see eye to eye, that have the same view in regard to doctrine and principle, that are of the same mind? They can scarcely be found. I doubt whether they can be found in the world. How is it among us, the Latter-day Saints? I will say many of them, they do, exact, they do actually, in the great fundamental principles of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, see eye to eye. I cannot suppose that in our infancy and childhood, we can attain to all this great perfection in a moment and be brought to see and understand alike. But there is one great heavenly standard or principle. It is the restoration of the holy priesthood, the living oracles of God to the earth, and that priesthood dictated, governed, and directed by the holy or by the power of revelation through the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is the standard to which all the Latter-day Saints and the kingdom of God must come in order to fulfill the prophecy I have read in your hearing. Francis Lyman said, What a splendid condition would obtain 
among the Latter-day Saints today, what an improvement there would be among us if we were to do the will of our Father as it is in heaven. It is it is possible for us to do the will of our Father. We know what He what His will is, and we beseech our Father that we may do His will as His will is done in heaven. And when we pray with faith, we will be enabled to live up to that prayer and that petition. And this should be the endeavor of every member of this church. Our thoughts should be brought to that point upon every occasion when we approach the Lord, that His will in us may be done as it is done in heaven. Uh, verse, uh, let's see, where am I? Verse 11. Uh, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Again, the phrase, give us, our, give us this day our daily bread, is missing from the Book of Mormon account. Because this direction was given to the twelve in the old world, the sermon to the Nephites was to all present, not just the twelve. The Nephites had to work for their food as we do. Talmud says, if others owe us, oh, I just read, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If others owe us, either in actual money or goods as suggested by debts and debtors, or, or though some infringement as a trespass, our mode of dealing with them will be taken into, into righteous account in the judgment of our own offenses. Remember that uh, we're supposed to be forgiven, uh, forgiving of everyone. Uh, that's a commandment. Verse 12, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first part of this petition, Elder Talmadge said, has occasioned comment and question. We are not to understand that God would ever lead a man into temptation, except perhaps by way of wise permission to test and prove him, thereby affording him opportunity to overcoming and so of gaining spiritual strength. How inconsistent then to go, as many do, into the places where the temptations to which we are most susceptible are strongest, for the man beset with a passion for strong drink, to so pray and then resort to the dram shop, or the bar for the man whose desires are lustful to voice such a prayer and then go where lust is kindled. For the dishonest man, though he say the prayer, to then place himself where he knows the opportunity to steal will be found. Can such souls as these be other than hypocrites in asking God to deliver them from the evils they have sought? Temptation will fall in our way without our seeking, and evil will present itself even when we desire most to do right. For deliverance from such we may pray with righteous expectation and assurance. And then Elder Talmadge also said, the intent of the supplication appears to be that we be preserved from temptation beyond our weak powers to withstand, that we be not abandoned to temptation without the divine support that shall be as full a measure of protection as our exercise of choice will allow. Verse 13, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Doctrine and Covenant says, Ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. Elder Holland says, Life is too short to be spent nursing animosities or in keeping a box score of offenses against us. We don't want God to remember our sins, so there is something fundamentally wrong in our relentlessly trying to remember those of others. When we have been hurt, undoubtedly God takes into, into account what wrongs were done to us and what provocations there are for our resentments, but clearly the more provocation there is and the more excuse we can find for our hurt, all the more reason for us to forgive and be delivered from the destructive hell and of such poisonous venom and anger. It is one of those ironies of Godhood that in order to find peace, the offended as well as the offender must engage the principle of forgiveness. We are to forgive to be forgiven, to wait for them to repent before we forgive, and repent is 
to allow them to choose for us a delay which could cost us happiness here and hereafter. And that was by Henry B. Eyring. Uh, President Kimball said, remember that we must forgive even if our offender did not repent and ask forgiveness. It frequently happens that offenses are committed when the offender is not aware of it. Something he has said or done is misconstrued or misunderstood. The offended one treasures in his heart the offense, adding to it such other things as might give fuel to the fire and justify his conclusions. Do we follow that command or do we sulk in our bitterness waiting for our offender to learn of it and to kneel to us in remorse? And this reconciliation suggests also forgetting. Unless you forget, have you forgiven? No bitterness of past frictions can be held in memory if we forgive with all our hearts. B.H. Roberts said, Since the Lord requires so much mercy, such a generous spirit of forgiveness in his children, may it not be reasonably concluded, inasmuch as every noble quality that man possesses is in deity enlarged and perfected, that God is infinitely more forgiving than he has commanded his children to be. Man may drive compassion from his heart, God never will. Because of the loving kindness of our Father in heaven, as abundantly manifested in his willingness to pardon our transgressions, let us not lay the flattering unction to our souls that we can go on sinning carelessly and recklessly without making an effort to resist evil. Uh, also remember that Elder Bednar made the, gave a talk on uh, being offended, that uh, being offended is a choice that we make. Uh, that we don't that we needn't be offended uh, when when offense may not even be uh, be intended also they've uh, shown medically that uh, forgiving others and not holding grudges uh, is actually more healthy for us than uh, to hold a grudge and thereby increase our blood pressure verse 16 moreover when ye fast be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast verily i say unto you they have their reward but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy father who is in secret, and thy father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. There is no limit to the good that you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. And that was by Antoine Ivans. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, How is this paradox to be resolved? From whom are we to hide the visibility of our discipleship? We are to hide it from ourselves. We must be unaware of our own righteousness and see it only in so far as we look unto Jesus. The Christian is a light unto the world, not because of any quality of his own, but only because he follows Christ and looks solely to him. All that the follower of Jesus has to do is to make sure that his obedience, following and love are entirely spontaneous and unpremeditated. If you do good, you must not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Christ's virtue, the virtue of discipleship, can only be accomplished so long as you are entirely unconscious of what you are doing. The genuine work of love is always a hidden work. Thus, hiddenness has its counterpart in manifestation, for there is nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. God will show us the hidden and make it visible. Manifestation is the appointed reward for hiddenness, and the only question is where we, we shall receive it and who will give it us. If we want publicity in the eyes of men, we have our reward. If the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, if we become conscious of our hidden virtue, we are, for, we are forging our own reward instead of that which God had, had intended to give us in his own good time. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. 
Elder McConkie said, while yet on earth, men may lay up treasures in heaven. These treasures earned here and now in mortality are in effect deposited to our eternal bank account in heaven, where eventually they will be re-inherited again in immortality. Treasures in heaven are the character, perfections, and attributes which men acquire by obedience to law. Thus, those who gain such attributes of godliness as knowledge, faith, justice, judgment, mercy, and truth will find these same attributes restored to them again in immortality. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, says the Doctrine and Covenants, it will rise with us in the resurrection. Orson Hyde said, Whenever I see the hungry and feed him, the naked and clothe him, the sick and distressed and administered to their wants, I feel that I am laying up treasure in heaven. When I am educating my children and embellishing their minds and fitting them for usefulness, I am laying up treasures in heaven. I would ask that little boy who is well-educated and well-trained, what thief can enter in and steal the knowledge you have got? It is beyond the power of the thief to steal. It is out of his reach. That treasure is laid up in heaven. For where is there a place more sacred than the hearts of the rising generation, which beat with purity and with love to their parents and with love to God and his kingdom? What better place can you find in which to deposit treasures than that? But all our obligations are not pointing to one source or quarter. There are many ways in which we can lay up treasures in heaven by doing good here on the earth. President Charles W. Penrose said, O oh, my brethren and sisters, why waste your time, your talents, your means, your influence in following something that will perish and pass away, when you could devote yourselves to a thing that will stand forever? For this church and kingdom to which you belong will abide and continue in time in eternity while endless ages roll along, and you will and you with it will become mightier and more powerful, while the things of this world will pass away and perish, and will not abide in nor after the resurrection, saith the Lord our God. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is your greatest treasure that you have on earth? Is it your family? Verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Gordon B. Hinckley said, If you concentrate on the work of the Lord, if you give it everything you have, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. Gone will be the darkness of sin. Gone will be the darkness of laziness. Gone will be all of these negative things. That's the word of the Lord to you and to me. Orson Hyde said, have you, have you that control and dominion over your own minds that they cannot be caught away by anything that is foreign to the purpose of to the purpose or object that engages your attention? For instance, while we call upon the Lord for his blessings, is it not sometimes the case that we think the old ox may be in the stockyard? Do we not sometimes think we shall be cheated here and lose that amount of money there? If you have never been aware of this, when you go home and pray again, see if you have power to control your mind and keep it from wandering on something else. Until we discipline our minds and have the complete control of them, we cannot make the advancement that we ought. If we cannot discipline and control our own minds, how can we discipline and control kingdoms, nations, tongues, and people? If thine eye were single, thou mightest sometimes see through the veil. So that's a challenge that we have is to think uh, think of the Lord, especially in our prayers, that we don't wander in our thoughts to something else. That's a good challenge to, to think about. Verse 23. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon is an Aramaic word, which means for riches or for money. Elder Maxwell said, Some may never sell Jesus for 30 pieces, but they would not give him their all either. 
Unfortunately, we tend to think of consecration only in terms of property and money, but there are so many ways of keeping back part. One might be giving of money and time and yet hold back a significant portion of himself. One might accept a church calling but have, the, but have his heart more set on maintaining a certain role in the world. Each of us is an innkeeper who decides if there is room for Jesus. Consecration is the only surrender which is also a victory. It brings release from selfishness and emancipation from the dark prison of pride. Consecration may not require giving up worldly possessions so much as being less possessed by them. Brothers and sisters, whatever we embrace instead of Jesus and his work will keep us from qualifying to enter his kingdom and therefore from being embraced by him. Verse 25, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked upon the twelve whom he had chosen. So now he turns to the twelve uh, from among the Nephites and is going to speak directly to them. And said unto them, Remember the words which I have spoken, for, for behold, ye are they whom I have chosen to minister unto this people. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? So this was uh, something he was telling the twelve not to be anxious about uh, worldly things while you're uh, about the ministry uh, as one of the members of the twelve. Jeffrey R. Holland said, in a general sense, these verses can apply to all believers, but at their most literal level, they apply to those the Lord has called as his full-time witnesses. Most people must give some thought to what they will eat and what they will, and what they will wear. The necessities of life require it, but the twelve disciples were not to do so, for they were chosen to minister unto the people. Their call was to give complete devotion to their spiritual ministry and to trust in God and the people's providence for their temporal needs. Hugh Nibley said, we have been permitted to come here to go to school, to acquire certain knowledge and take a number of tests to prepare us for greater things hereafter. This whole life, in fact, is a state of probation. While we are at school, our generous patron has provided us with all the necessities of living that we will need to carry us through. Imagine then that at the end of the first school year, your kind benefactor pays the school a visit. He meets you and asks you how you are doing. Oh, you say, I am doing very well, thanks to your bounty. Are you studying a lot? Yes, I am making good progress. What subjects are you studying? Oh, I am studying courses in how to get more lunch. You study that? All the time. Yes, I thought of studying some other subjects. Indeed, I would love to study them. Some of them are so fascinating, but after all, it's the bread and butter courses that count. This is the real world, you know. There is no free lunch, but my dear boy, I'm providing you with that right now. Yeah, for the time being, and I'm grateful, but my purpose in life is to get more and better lunches. I want to do right at the, I want to do I want to go right to the top, the executive suite, the Marriott lunch. I once had university fellowship for which I had to agree not to accept any gainful employment for the period of a year. All living necessities were supplied. I was actually forbidden to work for lunch. Was it free lunch? I never worked so hard in my life, but I never gave lunch a thought. I wasn't supposed to. I was eating only so that I could do my work. I was not working only so that I could eat. And that is what the Lord asks us, to forget about lunch and do his work, and the lunch will be taken care of. Again, that was Hugh Nibley. Who else? Verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, even so will he clothe you, if ye are not of little faith. 
Wherefore, take no thought, saying, what shall, I, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This does not designate order in time. First seek God and then you can seek worldliness. It designates the complete focus of the soul. Worldliness with its burdens is abandoned and God's way embraced. Verse 34, take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient is the day unto the evil thereof. Harold B. Lee said, the only day you have to worry about is today. There is nothing you can do about yesterday except repent. That means if you made mistakes yesterday, don't be making them today. Don't worry about tomorrow because you may have no tomorrows. This is the masterpiece you ought to be thinking about today. And if you can always witness honestly that whatever you did, you did the, to the best of your ability and next day try improvement on that. When your life's end comes or you, of you it can be said in truth, his was a successful life because he lived to the best that was in him. That's all the Lord expects of any one of his children. We are all born with different capacities, some to do one thing, some to do the other, and all he asks is that we do our best, and that's the measure by which we'll be judged when that time comes. Uh, keeping in mind that uh, some days we just can't do our best, uh, but we, we do the best as best we can, and that the Savior makes, up, uh, makes all the difference for us in, in our uh, eternal progression. Dale Carnegie said, those words of, of Jesus translated over three hundred years ago don't mean today what they meant during the reign of King James. Three hundred years ago, the word thought frequently meant anxiety. By all means, take thought for the morrow. Yes, careful thought and planning and preparation, but have no anxiety. So when he says, take therefore no thought for the morrow, he's saying don't be anxious about tomorrow or don't worry about tomorrow. Hubie Brown said, worry involves no reason, no judgment, no plannings for future contingencies. It is just plain worry, and it is, it, is, it is as pernicious as it is widespread and unnecessary. Habitual worrying makes a person miserable in the midst of happiness. Worry is 90% fear, which is the opposite of faith. The worrier is self-centered, preoccupied, and gloomy. He seems to enjoy being miserable and insists on others sharing his despair. He refuses to be comforted, as that would rob him of his cherished pastime. Worry is a daytime nightmare and often has no more substance than a dream. Worry and discontent, fretting and stewing, ceaseless anxiety, unhappy dispositions, all tend to obscure the sun of happiness and life the, and life, the fog and smog in some cities. Shut out the sunlight and change daytime into night. Let us throw open the windows of the soul. Let in the sunshine of faith. Take a deep breath and tell all about us. It is good to be alive. Truly, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Worry is more exhausting than work. The best antidote for worry is hard work, which is invigorating and health-giving. That was again by Hubie Brown. I bear testimony that these things are true and that this sermon that we have here as we're reading uh, is, is truly about the character of Jesus Christ as well, and that we're trying to emulate him. So good luck in trying to uh, incorporate all of these principles into your lives. This is the goal. Talk to you later. Bye.